2: Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host today on our New Books in Latin American Studies channel, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored to be with my guest today, Sean Austin. Sean Austin is Associate Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. He is the author of the new book, Colonial Kinship, Guarani, Spaniards, and Africans in Paraguay, published by University of New Mexico Press, 2020. Sean, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
1: Thanks for having me on the show, Ari. It's great to be here with you.
2: Great to be communicating with you. Uh, To begin, uh, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your life or education that inspired you to become a historian?
1: Sure, yeah, uh, I grew up in uh, mainly in Colorado uh, on the plains and then spending lots of time in the Rockies. Um, I, I think that my path towards history began as a, as a thespian, I was in theater in high school and just loved, you know, exploring the human condition. Uh, we did uh, uh, this by the skin of our teeth and I played the role of, of uh, the archetypal cane. Uh, we did some musicals and uh, I even tap danced. Um, so I had a lot of fun doing that. Um, I served as a, as a missionary for uh, my church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Paraguay. And that's where really kind of the, the roots of my Latin American his- historical interests are, are found. Um, this is a, you know, it a two, two year fairly immersive kind of experience and um, uh, one of my the first areas that I was assigned to was uh, in the south of the country of Paraguay and um, very rural place a lot of soy farming uh, a lot of uh, small small crop farming and uh, running into to people and uh, interacting with people who were um, whose only language was Guarani, right? They could barely understand our Spanish, and um, you know, coming away from that experience, two years in that country, in some ways was really disorienting. Just trying to figure out what what is this culture about, and um, and so when I when I went to graduate school, I started I started you know digging into Paraguayan history, and um, I just sort of fed off of those experiences and tried to to find a way to to you know to explore my just broad interest in humanity but but in this history Um, i was actually doing a a project on on the dictatorship period in 20th century paraguay um, and for a variety of reasons i pivoted to a colonial era project and just haven't looked back
2: what inspired you to write this book
1: well, I, um, I, you know, I, I, it's a dissertation book, um, and so like like many dissertations, um, it began in a graduate seminar, um, and, uh, and 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 so I had uh, I had some really amazing advisors uh, and uh, helped me see the potential of uh, of a uh, a kind of social history uh socio-historical approach to to this this period of the 16th and 17th centuries um, because most of the literature just hadn't really touched uh, the the kinds of sources that i'm using for that period um and so as i started digging into it i started uh they actually there's a bunch of microfish um copies of litigation records housed at the Uh, UT Austin Benson Library. And so I flew down there for a quick dip into the archives. um, And I started to see the potential for um, telling stories about Guadalupe people um, that just had never been told, and uh, trying to to critique the different um, uh, historiographical patterns for describing cultural evolution in Paraguay and social evolution in Paraguay and colonialism in Paraguay. So it, you know, it's sort of, the ball started rolling with that uh, with an early graduate paper. And then from there I could just see the potential of, of telling these stories. Uh, We start to see individuals and individual names and uh, we can trace people's people's lives. And so I just found a lot of, a lot of joy in, in that, in, in kind of following that process. Um,
2: what contribution does your book make to existing scholarship? Um, can you speak about your book's central thesis and message and where you would situate it in light of the literature that exists on colonial Paraguay?
1: Yeah, so the 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 central thesis is that we cannot understand uh, colonial Paraguay, colonial institutions <laughs> without understanding Guarani logics of exchange and particularly of kinship. Uh, Guarani peoples uh, use kinship as a primary mode of understanding relationships with outsiders. And so as I started looking at these sources, i noticing a language of kinship um and um and so i i sort of clung to that and used it as an anchor for exploring this um two century period um, and the major i think contribution um within the field specifically is that it pivots away from jesuit centric histories um, i employ jesuit sources but the jesuit mission complex um, uh, is understandably and, and and merits a lot of historical attention, but it's also led historians to to sort of forget other guaraní peoples. Um, there's also a kind of nationalist, uh, sometimes nationalist construction of, uh, of 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 the histories. Um, and, uh, and so what I try to do is instead of just pivoting completely away from Jesuits, I also want to ensure that Jesuit sources are, are still there because they're relevant to the peoples that I'm exploring. I center on Guarani peoples who are connected to, to Spaniards in Asuncion, uh, who uh, are, are subject to the, the labor system in, 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 uh, in Asuncion. And, and so it It just uh, this this pivot away from the jesuits and and sort of centering in Asuncion allows me to use a, a whole different variety of sources that can tell us different stories about about Guadani peoples. Um but I hope that for the broader audiences that this is um, a, a useful book on co- colonization, and that uh, it shows the the really deep and historical historically contingent uh, nuances uh, of, of 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 the colonial colonial processes, and what's central to my story here is is the ways in which Guaraní kinship informed uh, colonial power and and colonial relationships.
2: Did you spend time in Paraguay while doing research for the book?
1: Yeah, a couple a couple of months. Um, I was allowed to photograph uh, documents, and so I. I took something like 70 gigabytes worth of, of photographs of, of documents. And so I came home with an archive. Um, so a, a longer research, research day was uh, was not necessary. And it wasn't uh, possible for me, just given my, my f- family situation. So I was grateful that the archive allowed me to, to photograph. Um, I, you know, I had spent uh almost two years in paraguay before this research trip and, and going back in 2000 um 2000 and when was it 2012 i believe it was um it was really wonderful to return to the country um what's really interesting about paraguay is that the majority of paraguayans speak guarani which is an indigenous language um, but the ability to speak Guarani does not mark one as indigenous. And this is somewhat rare and uh, it's rare in Latin America and it's, um, it's rare in the world. Um, if you speak Aymara or Quechua in Bolivia and Peru, it sort of marks you uh, as, um, as gente del pueblo, right? As, as indigenous. And in Paraguay, it just doesn't function like that uh, mm-hmm. in the course of the 19th century. And I think some of the story that I'm telling, the language became, you know, deeply connected to Creole Spanish identity, um, uh, even though it, this was sort of subsumed in the colonial period. But by the, the national period in the late mid to late 19th century, Guarani becomes this national language. And um, it's used during the Triple Alliance War in the mid 19th century, and, and and it's a language of passion. It's a language of patriotism. Uh, politicians stump with it. Uh, it's it's a, it's just a wonderful uh, uh, element of the culture. Uh, and and when you watch people code switch between Spanish and Guaraní, it's just fascinating to see what uh, what makes what makes people uh, switch between languages. Um, and so that, that's that's the one of the wonderful things about that country is the the fluorescence of this language, and it's growing. In fact, uh, I think there's something like six million million guaraní speakers. It's one of the most widely spoken indigenous languages in in the Americas. Um, and uh, and and that's uh, you know it connects to my history because there's there's a really interesting relationship between. The, the, the history of the Guarani, the Jesuits, the missions, right? And the language and how that language um, fits into a national identity. To our
2: listeners who might not have the same acquaintance with Paraguay as you do, what are your impressions of the country um, from the time that you've spent there can you share some of your reminiscences of Paraguay with us?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's a country that's experienced, uh, long dictatorship periods. Uh, but, um, in the late 20th and early 20th, 21st centuries, there's a, there's a fluorescence of, of democracy and, um, democratic culture. Um, and, uh, and you can you know you can see this and hear this and feel this when you're there. Um, there's also a lot of frustration with uh, you know the the political system and and the evolution of the economy. Um, in the 2000s, like the the uh, soy farming, uh, foreign so, uh, massive soy farming, agro uh, uh, mono, mono agriculture just just boomed in Paraguay. And, um, and so it, it led to higher tax revenues for some and investment in some areas, but it's, it's also left many behind. It's also been disastrous for indigenous communities. Really? Uh, absolutely disastrous. In what ways? Well, I'm thinking of uh, works uh, in anthropological works on indigenous peoples in the north of Paraguay in what's called the Chaco region, very arid, most of the year, um, and these are these just ma- thousands of acres just being bought up by foreign companies or large agro companies in Paraguay, and you have indigenous peoples, uh, the Ayoreo peoples, for example, living in these slivers of forest on either side. They've, you know, they've they've created these massive soy farms or what have you, and and the and these people are are sort of trying to to. To eke out this existence in these in these forest patches, and um, many of them have moved into cities, into Bolivia, northern cities in Paraguay, um, and are, are making a way of it. Um, but it's you know it's such a it, it, it's such a uh, ecological and cultural uh, devastating phenomenon, and so that's sad to you know to see happen. But it's also uh, we also have lots of evidence of of these people um, responding with a lot of creativity to these um, kind of impossible situations.
2: I one thing I'd be curious to ask you in regard to Guarani Spanish relations, as it comes up in your book, is the role of non-human elements and non-human agency can you comment on the role of the non-human whether non-human actors or non-human agents in Guarani Spanish relations?
1: Sure. Yeah. It's a great question. Uh, There, there, there are lots of Jaguars in my, in my book. Um, there were lots of Jaguars in, in this Atlantic forest, um, this semi-tropical forest area, uh, parts of Paraguay. And, um, and the jaguars fit into the story when we talk about especially Jesuit um, narratives of evangelization. And the Jesuits, um, in some ways, applied ness to, uh, to Guarani, who they disliked. And, and specifically, these were Guarani shaman. Uh, and the, the term that Guarani would have viewed w- was, was pajé. Mm-hmm. or or karai so these are, mm-hmm. are kind of prophet figures who move between communities and when jesuits were trying to create these mission towns these page like a jaguar lurked in the darkness of the forest right predating stalking the new the new lamb the new lambs that were the converts um, and and that Kind of literary uh, description and framing uh, of, of the situation is reflected of the profound fluidity of the early missions. People are coming and going all the time. And the Jesuits see the forest as this dark place of paganism. And the mission as a cleared past, as a cleared space, right? A space where civilization is being constructed. And so you create. The herbs, right? The, the 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 city, the the new civilization, and the kind of bestial forest area, and so jaguars figure into the story as, as predators of of the new converts. Um, and and maybe I can share a, an anecdote, Ari, from 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 the book. Um, there's a Jesuit in the eastern region of Guayra named Claudio Ruyer. Uh, who writes these letters that end up in a, in a, a report uh, to the Jesuit superiors. And um, he had just founded with uh, his fellow Jesuit a, a community, a, a, a mission. And um, in his description, you can tell that it's very inchoate that people are not living all together in one kind of conglomerated group um, they haven't organized an urban space necessarily yet. It's a fairly primitive chapel they've built and people are living in their, in their villages outside of the mission site. And so there's a village that is associated with the mission that Ruyer will say belongs to the mission. And uh, he recounts the following story that uh, in, in uh, in the dead of night, there's this, this young girl sleeping in a hammock in the village next to her mother and a jaguar creeps in and snatches the girl out of her hammock and takes her into the forest where um, he, the, the jaguar kills this girl. And uh, the, the villagers are you know wake up, grab their bow and arrow and uh, other weapons and they try to chase this thing down. They eventually scare it away um, and they find the girl, the girl dead. They go to the Jesuits, right, and say, "We've got this problem." And I find that fascinating that they would go to the Jesuits. I think what they're, they see in the Jesuits is they see them as potentially powerful spiritually, as maybe mediators. Um, they're different, right? the uh, The word for the for priest means different man uh, that the Guarani give to them. So they invite the priest to the, to the area where the Jaguar was. Um, they set a trap. The priest says a mass at the site of this trap and, um, and, and returns He the priest returns home. The next day they find the Jaguar in the trap. The villagers take the, the Jaguar, they kill it and they take it back to the church. And in front of the church patio, they skin it and quarter it. And so violence is being done in a way that uh, indicates it, it, it's important that they're doing it there in the mission town and that the Jesuits are connected to the killing of this Jaguar. And the Jesuit uh, Ruyer will say, conclude the story by saying that we were known as Jaguar killers, right? And, and I'm thinking of the Guarani terminology that they would have used, right? But they certainly became perceived as powerful figures who could hunt other powerful figures like a jaguar. And so um, these, are, these are really incredible stories that just speak to the, you know, the powerful ecosystem and the, and the kind of the, the um, really, really interesting uh, social and biological world uh, that, that the mission sites are being constructed in and the ways in which evangelization is borrowing from Guarani ideas about about danger and predation.
2: On page 10 in your book, you write that natives in Paraguay acquired a new corporate legal status, status as indios under Spanish law, but they also experienced ethnogenesis and became Guarani. Can you explain further? What do you mean by ethnogenesis?
1: Yeah, this is, this is a term that uh, describes the, the, the kind of uh, the formation through contact, uh, often violent systems, the formation of, of groups of people, either corporate, legal, social identities. These are, these are the formation and the continued evolution of these kinds of of of, um, uh, of of categories, and we can start with the category Guaraní. Uh, the word actually means war. Uh, it's a it's a uh, it's used as a as a verb often, or as a noun, um, and and this word became to came to apply to the peoples we now know as Guaraní. Uh, the Guarani did not use that term to refer to themselves. Um, They usually refer to themselves as "aba," which means men. Um, And so this is not, I don't think, a self-applied term. And so I think that it, it reflects Spanish ideas about Guarani as warriors, because in the initial encounters with Guarani, they were uh, some of them allies with Spaniards on their expeditions to the North. And so um, the, the kind of Guaranization is the, the coming together of, um, of peoples that share a similar culture within a colonial context. And that brings us to the term Indio, right? This is a socio-corporate legal identity that is applied to indigenous peoples throughout the Americas it means nothing in terms of culture, right? It's, it's, a, it's a term that Spaniards would use uh, to refer to people who were subject to tribute obligations. Um, and also under the Spanish evolving legal system, Indios uh, were people who uh, had special rights and protections from the crown. Um, they were given free legal representation um, the crown sort of tor- took a sort of patriarchal attitude towards indigenous peoples because it was feared that they, they could be, you know, uh, they could be wiped out or uh, if there's too much miscegenation that they would disappear and you'd, you'd lose a tribute group. And so th- the, the book explores the, the relationship between those two processes. If you don't want to be asking
2: What do you mean by cuñadasco? Can you explain this concept for those who are not acquainted with it? What role did cuñadasco play in Spanish Guarani relations and what role does the concept play in your book?
1: Right. So the the term cuñadasco is a kind of Spanish neologism roughly roughly translated as brother-in-law ship, right? A brother-in-law institution. Um, and uh, this stems from the earliest relationships between conquistadors and uh, Tupi, Tupi Guarani indigenous peoples. Guarani accepted many Spaniards or were coerced into accepting Spaniards as brothers-in-law. And the term in Guarani would be tovaja, and um, Tobaja uh, relationships were, were often relationships of reciprocity, especially if it was a Tobaja coming from outside of the group so that individual um, leaders in communities would create these relationships to maybe knit communities together or create strategic alliances uh, or to, you know, continue... Um, to to continue relationships of kinship, right? With with groups whose maybe relationships are fraying. And so as Spaniards arrive, they quickly notice that this is an opportunity to get access to indigenous laborers. And what happens is, is that Spaniards uh, go in, they usually offer iron tools, as barter, as gifts. And in exchange, a Guarani chieftain might give the, the Spaniard uh, a couple of cousins or daughters as wives, quote unquote. The, the term doesn't really exist in Guarani. Mm-hmm. Um, and Spaniards would then employ these women as, as servants. They would treat them uh, slave-like in some ways. Um, and they would be theirs right and, and and then you now have another household right and that Spaniard has to maintain a relationship with the given community because what I find in the book is that those re- those relationships of kinship are not necessarily cut off especially with groups that remain fairly close to the centers of Spanish settlement so you have for example an account of a woman who returns to her home village, right? She's, the ser- she's serving a Spaniard and she returns to her home village to, to mourn the loss of a dead relative. So, uh, it, it, you know, the, there, you get glimmers and glimpses of these, these kinds of uh, continued social relationships. And so that's why I see Spaniards embedded within relationships of Tobaja, and a Jesuit kind of reflecting on this now, you know, hundred year history of, of, of uh, relationships says that the founding of the city of Asunción, the capital of Paraguay, the founding of, of Paraguay was, was, came about more by cuñadasco than by conquest. And what he was trying to say is that these, these relationships of, of kinship with Guarani were fundamental to the establishment and the growth and evolution of the city, and I, I find the term also rich in, in uh, semantically because uh, cuñado means brother-in-law in Spanish. Uh, you're creating a kind of uh, a kind of institution with that word with uh, neologism, but in in Guarani, cuña is woman, and, and so. You have uh, another, another kind of uh, resonance. You also have cuñas. Cuñas in Spanish means axes. And this was the primary uh, object for bartering and trading and gifting in this system. Uh, one Jesuit, or maybe it wasn't a Jesuit, it was a, a priest who said you could, no, it was a Jesuit. He said it, you could buy a lineage, right, with an axe head. In other words, you could you could buy your way into these relationships that would funnel women into your household um, with with these objects.
2: On page 231, you, you write the following. Hiding in plain sight, mixed in, a, mixed in among Guarani, Yanakona populations were indigenous people who indi- who originated from non Guarani communities, especially Guaysuru. Unlike some of their Guarani counterparts who came to Asuncion by way of cuñadasco and who maintained connections to their natal pueblos, most of these natives were brought to Asuncion through the severest forms of violence and never had the chance to reconnect with their kin. Can you say more about this and can you share some specific cases and examples?
0: Sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think that the, the the majority of Guarani, and I, I say majority because there, there are lots of Guarani who experience deracination, who experience just absolutely severe uh, separation from their communities. Right, Spaniards uh, stretched far and wide, um, but the groups called Guaikuru, were incorporated into Spanish colonial systems, uh, mainly through violent conquest and violent interactions. Um, this is the, the peoples that Spaniards called Guaikuru uh, were groups who uh, were, were less sedentary than Guarani. Um, one of the kind of subgroups sub of the is uh, a group called Payagua. And Payaguá Spaniards described them as river pirates. They they had these canoes. They could build fires on their canoes and live in their canoes for days at a time. They would move and fish and hunt. And as Spaniards and Guarani started establishing these settlements along the Paraguay River and its tributaries, um, Guaycuru became very good at raiding these communities, Guarani and Spanish, and so by the turn of the century in the 17th century, you have a sense that Guaycuru are becoming dominant on the frontier. Uh, and so they're raiding seasonally. Um, one Spaniard says that they, they came into Asunción, they marched into Asunción and demanded to trade. Governors were uh, you know, shaking in their boots when these, when these Guaycuru trading bands showed up. Um, they weren't sure if they were going to attack or if they really wanted to trade. Others would then go into the into the hinterland and go trade with Guarani, uh, with excuse me, Paraguayan, uh, uh, s- well, with uh, Spanish settler farmers. One Spaniard says that they would grab our beards and tug on them. The worst kind of offense to a Spaniard, right, to take to touch their beard. So you get a sense of the Guaycuru feel that they're they're sort of dominant. And so throughout the colonial period, you have these, these moments of trade, but then also violent interaction between Spaniards and Guaycuru, And usually it starts with a Guaycuru raid. Spaniards will respond by going on a punitive expedition. And most of these fail pretty miserably. Some of them result in the capture of many, many captives. Uh, and so in the late 16th century, especially, uh, there are some really uh, violent... Uh, 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 wars with Guaycuru, and they they start funneling these Guaycuru into Spanish households, and the model is encomienda, right? They they sort of channel them into uh, Spanish households as if they were part of the Guaraní encomienda units, and yet they're um, they're ident- identified more as slaves. And so there's a there's a kind of an interesting opportunity for comparing the the different ways in which indigenous peoples came into Spanish households as as servants, and um, unfortunately, Guaycuru experienced that in the most violent ways.
2: How did the Guarani and Spanish languages interact with each other? Can you comment on the linguistic relations between the two communities?
1: Sure. I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not a linguist, um, and uh, there are really excellent linguists who do amazing work on this. I'm working with with one of them right now on a on a project, a translation project. Um, but what we what we begin to notice immediately is that Spaniards are acquiring the Guaraní language at a much more frequent rate than indigenous peoples are acquiring Spanish. Very few. Uh, indigenous peoples speak Spanish, um, and a majority of Creoles uh, that is locally born Spaniards grow up learning Guarani uh, in some way or another. Uh, You you can imagine, you know, a Spaniard growing up with a midwife or a a nurse, a Guarani nurse, um, speaking to him in Guarani, um, all of the the servants in the household if this is a spanish household that has indigenous servants are going to be speaking guarani including african slaves most african slaves of at least you know the second generation um, learn the indigenous language so it, it quickly becomes um a kind of creole language and um th- there's a lot of tension and uh uh anxiety over this right spaniards who come to the region from from outside of paraguay are deeply concerned by this um jesuits uh call the 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 guarani that spaniards speak gobbledygook right they just think it's it's a bastardized version of guarani because the jesuits are you know steadily at work writing lexicons and dictionaries and refining the language and in ways that meet their, their standards for evangelization and for their standards uh, uh, in the mission complexes. Um, and, um, and, and so there, there are these interesting already, you know by the 18th century, these commentaries on this, this now Creole language, right the, the, the Guarani language spoken by Spaniards. Um, and uh, unfortunately we don't have a lot of Guarani language records uh, from the region of Asuncion, uh, the bulk of the Guarani language records come from, uh, come from the Jesuit complex. Uh, but we have some, and, um, and they're really interesting. We, we can begin to do kind of, um, philological analysis. And what surprises me, uh, is how few Spanish loan words show up in, uh, these Guarani texts. Um, there's just so few loan words, and this is really uh, different from the context in Mexico in Nahua. Nahua, there's, there's so many more Spanish loan words, I think, than, than what's happening in Paraguay.
2: What were reducciones? What kinds of economic activity took place at reducciones? What was daily life like, and what kinds of labor tasks did Guarani perform?
1: Sure. So, a reduccion is a mission town, um, and these are, are designed to transform. That's what the root of that word, reducir, comes from, is to transform uh, indigenous peoples in these spaces. Um, Reducciones were uh, tried to be urban spaces, and they always had um, a hinterland, uh, ranch lands, farmlands. And so in a, um, in a, you know, a mission town, let's take Yaguaron um, outside of Asuncion, you'd find, you know, people getting up uh, in the morning and going to mass, you'd find um, people working in the fields. There are lots of uh, ranch labor, Guaraní riding on horseback, managing you know herds of cattle, um, living in in sort of uh, almost small uh, family sized units outside of the mission, uh, managing managing cattle herds. Um, yerba mate is another uh, is a is a major economic activity in Paraguay. Uh, yerba uh, mate is uh, is, a, is a, a tea, a local tea that Guarani peoples used and then Spaniards adopted uh, and became a it kind of took off regionally and then it spread throughout the continent. Uh, we have accounts of people sipping yerba mate out of uh, silver encrusted gourds and straws in Peru, in Lima, in Mexico City even. Um, and so it expanded. Um, and so the, the kind of, main uh, uh, natural groves were in the heart of Paraguay. And so you'd have uh, labor gangs of Guarani going uh, to harvest their own yerba. And then you'd have gangs of laborers being employed under the tribute system as laborers to to attend to a, a Spanish captain of a yerba expedition. You'd find Guarani uh, migrating between their communities and Asuncion, um, long trips on the road to, to go serve their time as, uh, uh, as their, their tribute, their corvee tribute period um, on a Spanish ranch or farm. And they might be there for two months and then return back to their community. This was the, the kind of gold standard by the 17th century. Um, and we also have uh, artisanal guilds and workshops in missions. Uh, Guarani are making organs and making uh, violins. Uh, they're making sculpture, uh, painting. Uh, so there's another class of, of artisans uh, in the mission towns. What's interesting, I think, you know, to point out, um, Something my my colleague Julia Sarial, points out uh, in in her book on the missions is these were actually centers of population. We often think of missions as as peripheries, but at the at their height, the the Guaraní Jesuit missions had something like 130,000 uh, Guaraní, and um, and so this this was the population center, right? When compared with what, you know, 6,000 in Asuncion and at some points in the 17th century, 6,000 in Buenos Aires. Um, So these were, you know, many of these were large towns. Um, Some of the Jesuit towns, uh, 6,000 to 7,000. So they could be bustling spaces.
2: What kinds of abuse did Guarani suffer? Can you share specific examples of the kinds of mistreatment that they were subjected to?
1: Sure. Yeah. The, 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 most, the most common and egregious was physical abuse. Uh, you just, you, you can imagine these, these farmsteads of Spaniards, you've got a household, a house with its, you know, its farm buildings and and huts where Guadani servants are living. You've got kitchen um, and people are moving with in and out of these households and they're rubbing shoulders with each other. And, You get a lot of accounts of Spaniards beating up on on a Guarani servant who does something wrong in the field, right? Maybe pulls too much mandioca out of the field. Um, You have a lot of neighbor on neighbor's servants, violence, Guarani out in the field. uh, The neighbor's cattle starts running into the field. The Guarani chase it, the servants chase it off. Uh, the Spaniard rides by on his horse and you know hits someone with the sword, um, slashes someone with the sword, or hits them with a stick. Um, so these kind of uh, w- you know what we call r- r- run-of-the-mill rural kinds of violence uh, between neighbors uh, is happening very frequently. Sexual violence is very common um, in uh, in these relationships. Um, and they're, they're harder to access in the documents, uh, but, uh, we know that they're there, the, there's enough documentation to, to point like a windsock for us, that this is a very frequent occurrence. Um, so this is, a you know, this is another thing that, uh, Guadani are dealing with. Um, and, uh, and then there's, you know, there's violence amongst servants themselves, but, um, you see a lot of this Spanish, Spaniard on horseback, right? You know, uh, hitting someone over the head because they spoke up.
2: Wow. Gosh, it's hard to hear that described, let alone to experience it physically. Um, Can you comment on the case of Bartolome de Miño and Pedro Tamayo? What can we learn from this episode? What happened in this case?
1: Sure. Yeah. So when we think about sexual violence, this is one of those cases where this, I think this case opens up, you know, questions for us about, um, about the kinds of relationships Spaniards might've forged with indigenous peoples. So Nino and Tamayo were poor soldiers. They were, uh, they were bad soldiers. They were supposed to be on an expedition in the South. Uh, they were heading to uh, the city of Santa Fe, which is very far South um, to join an expedition against Guaycuru or um, uh, indigenous peoples who were attacking these towns, these Spanish towns. They, they claimed that the expedition was over and that they were just uh, returning. Uh, but but what probably happened was that they deserted, and they went to uh, an indigenous town. I believe it's Yaguaron. I don't have the case open, but this is a town that's pretty close to Asuncion and uh, a town in which the the Miño had an encomienda. So he has uh, groups of Guarani who, who serve him rotationally. So he knows people there. Um, and he's, his, he's in his 20s, mid-20s, Tamayo's in his mid-20s. So these are younger guys and they go to the community and um, they, they end up, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, suggested that they, they spend a night with these two Guarani women. And um, in the depositions, the Guarani women Uh, are asked if they were forced into this relationship with these men and there's no there's no indication they give no indication that this was a a relationship of force we have to read between the lines and and you know obviously there was because this is an incomendero, right he he feels some superiority here but i think the case also opens up um, the possibilities to think about the friendships and relationships that would have allowed these guys to go and and stay the night in this community. These, these communities were not powerless to kick out a Spaniard. It was against the law, right? And there are sheriffs and there are priests who can intervene. Um, and what we get from this case is a sense that, uh, that there might've been friendships involved in, in, uh, in explaining why these two Spaniards ended up, you know, staying in this community.
2: Speaking of encomiendos, um, there's a passage on page 225 in your book that I wanted to ask you about where you write donning Spanish clothing, acquiring the Spanish language, and participating in non-communal wage labor in the Spanish free market was a kind of tragedy of success Asuncion provides a counterpoint to this paradigm. One of the reasons Guarani found Asuncion and the Encomiendas viable communities was because Spanish society was undergoing a process of Guaranization at the same time that Guarani were experiencing uh, Guaranization. The socio-cultural changes were different for Spaniards than they were for Natives, but the spaces where they Overlapped created room for mutual understanding or the creation of community by bringing organization to Asuncion. Guarani made the urban space of Asuncion a cultural, a, a sociocultural home. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on the on, on that passage? And in what ways, if you don't mind me asking, was Asuncion similar or different from Lima, Cusco, Mexico City, and other South American? and Latin American capitals and major cities in the same period of time.
1: Sure. Yeah, the, the, the reference to tragedy of success is, is a reference to a historiography that you know sees um, the indigenous peoples taking on what we would think are Spanish practices, but in, in their context, they're, they're not seen in that bifurcated way. Um, right, that they're they're seen as a way of maybe social ascension or a way of expressing a kind of class. Um, and what's happening, I think that's interesting in in Asuncion is that Spaniards are acquiring so many traits attributed to Guarani culture, right? They're their foodstuffs, they're eating, you know, mandioca, this this cassava root kind of plant that Spaniards think is, you know, outsiders just think is wrong, right? You're gonna, right? Spaniards even believe that the more indigenous foods you ate, the more indigenous climate you you kind of absorb, the more Indian you could become. Um, and so there's a lot of anxiety about this, but um, for most Creole Spaniards, you know, they're not, they're not really batting an eye at it, right? It's just the outsider's anxieties or the newcomer's anxieties. Um, and so there's a process of Guaranization, the learning of the Guarani language by most Spaniards. Right? And then the other side is to think about how are Guarani being incorporated into, into the city and what kinds of spaces for community exist. And this is really hard question to answer uh, because of the dearth of records, uh, ecclesiastical records from Asuncion. So to connect your last question, if we think about cities like Lima or Mexico City's big colonial capitals, um, you, you have neighborhoods that are associated with indigenous communities. Um, and in, in Paraguay, you, you, don't, you don't get a sense of a sort of a, a segregated neighborhood. Most Guarani are living with Spaniards in their households. Um, I, I kind of, I define Asuncion as a kind of rural urban space. Uh, there's no main sort of urban center with long rows of apartments. Uh, most Spaniards live in these little farmsteads that dot the city. And so that's where, where indigenous people are living or they're living in, a, in, the, in the, the Franciscan or Mercedarian monastery or the Jesuit monastery, right? As, um, as sort of retainers or, or um, uh, servants in some ways. But you get little hints of community when you, you learn that there's a parish called the San Blas Parish where Guadani peoples uh, attended church. Um, there was a brotherhood, what's called a cofradia in Spanish, uh, a religious brotherhood, uh, which is very typical in uh, throughout the Americas for indigenous people, indigenous communities, specific ethnic groups to to maintain a brotherhood where they would worship a particular saint. Uh, but we just don't have any of those records. We just know it was there. Um, and so, in, in in these spaces, I I, I see room. F- there's room to see guaraní people creating community for themselves um, we know that guaraní from outside of asunción were traveling to asunción to visit family and to stay with people right um, and so so asunción in the historiography has been described as as kind of a, a place of pure subjugation and that Guarani peoples had no corporate identity. They had no ability to construct community. Um, they were just slaves to Spaniards. And, and the historical record doesn't bear that out. It, it, it doesn't tell us a whole lot more, but it does tell us that that narrative um, needs, needs to be revised. Um, and it's, it's already under revision, right? There's lots of other work on this. Uh, a colleague of mine, Laura, uh, of out of Chile writes about musicians traveling um, from the missions to perform in the city that Spaniards are actually employing Guarani musicians from outside from from the mission complexes to come and perform in the city because they don't have any musicians in essence <laughs> right the the the, the places is, is poor enough that you can't employ your own musicians and so they rely on um, mission labor, uh, musical labor, right from the missions itself, almost like uh, you know, coming uh, on on corvee labor terms. They're coming to serve. Um, there were there uh, many examples of this kind, where it's sort of an inverted city in that way, where you're drawing on what we we tend to see as a periphery to construct a center.
2: You, you, you write the following um, on page 73. While there is the potential for kindness in these relationships, quote-unquote kinship and friendship were firmly rooted in material benefits and reciprocity. Personal service was not free. What do you mean? Can you clarify?
1: Yeah, this is uh, thinking about the, the cuñadasco. What is it all about? Um, for Spaniards, it's you know, fundamentally it's about you you know making a profit in some way and so this is um this is what drives cuñadasco Um, guarani imposed on those relationships um an expectation of reciprocity so these 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 servants were not free because spaniards had to continually um, we could say, recharge their relationships of, uh, with Tovaja, with their brothers-in-law, through gifts. And in fact, um, in the late 16th century, um, one Spaniard commented in a, in a litigation trial, it just kind of came out in the conversation that, that to be a good encomendero was to be a good gifter that you you frequently gave knives or axes to your your brother-in-law Guarani counterpart Um, and and this this kind of relationships of reciprocity are really important and I'm you know after the book was published I've been learning because I'm now studying the Guarani language I'm learning a lot more about the kind of the, the 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 cultural logics here but the 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 guarani have no word for trade uh or to buy um and so the word that becomes associated with with exchange is a word uh, it's it's tepu and and tepu can mean vengeance or can mean trade or exchange it's it's sort of something somebody does something to you or for you and you respond with tepu right mm-hmm. and so I think that this this logic that we can garner from linguistics uh, helps us even further understand cuñadasco. Spaniards are expected to reciprocate. and What I argue in the book is that obviously this is not static, that over the course of the late 16th and early 17th centuries, these expectations for reciprocity and the ability of Guarani to expect reciprocity wanes um, as Spanish colonial uh, control over these communities uh, increases.
2: You also point out that both Guarani and encomenderos use the term love to describe their respect for each other. Can you provide some examples? What role did love play in the social relations playing out?
1: Yeah, these are you know, translations from the Guarani, we don't have the original Guarani. Uh, the notary just puts down that the, uh, you know, you, these, these, these came up in, in what, what are called visitas or, or visits, right? They're official censuses of indigenous communities. Um, and the governor goes in or the Lieutenant governor goes in and says, you know, we're gonna count everybody And they count them by encomienda, and so they say, you know, Juan uh, Gonzales is encomienda, and they count all the members, and they give them a chance to 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 uh, explain if their encomendero is treating them well, right? The encomendero was required to provide a priest, was required uh, to give them days off, uh, religious holidays. He was required. to provide clothing for them uh he was required to heal them if they got you know if they got sick to pay for a doctor or to you know provide some support and um many guarani complained and they said yeah my is not giving me enough clothing <laughs> they, they they would give them bolts of cloth and and sometimes the encomendero failed to do this or he would require them to work on holidays and and so they would complain. Others would say, I have, I have nothing to complain about. Um, and I, my encomendero treats me like, like a family. And there is a, some, some of them would say that there is a love between us. Um, and this is in the 1650s, right? This is fairly late. Um, and so the, the continued use of kinship and language of love, I think is really significant here. And I think it suggests that Guarani within these households as servants are expecting their, their uh, incomenderos to provide some reciprocity. It was part of the relationship. And when we say love, we also have to remember that there is um, there is intimacy in relationships of servitude, right? People are serving in their own households; they're raising each other's children. Um, you know, Guadalupe are raising Spanish children. One Spaniard says that um, there's love between me and my servants because um, I grew up with him, right? That it's almost like we're, we're, you know, we're part of a household, and there's a real fam- familial connection. So. I feel like the, the, the Guarani are using the the word love probably in a more, you uh, know, in, in a way that reflects reciprocity. And I, I sort of trace this through anthropological uh, insights on the use of the word love in modern Guarani uh, communities. Uh, so I, unfortunately, again, I don't have the original Guarani, but I suspect that the the word they're using is is, um, boraihu, and that word is, you know, I think it, it's wrapped up in notions of community and, and 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 reciprocity.
2: We've spoken quite a bit about the Guarani. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you about the Africans and their place in the story that you tell. Um, could you comment on the interaction between Africans and Indio personal servants, what were their relations and interactions like?
1: Sure. Um, Africans are in Paraguay from the beginning. Um, The first expeditions have uh, African, Spaniards have African slaves. This was just a they were so common that they almost go unmentioned. Um, in conquest expeditions, um, as the Yerba mate trade picks up steam, and as the Jesuits come into Paraguay, um, more and more Africans are being brought up the Paraguay River or across land from Brazil. And um, we can start with Spaniards. Spaniards are buying you know handfuls or a single a single African slave. And they're employing them usually on their on their farms, and they're working right alongside Guaraní personal servants. And so there's a, a, a you know a, a, a lot of intimate interaction and you know relationships and these communities of servants and these households right um, amongst uh, Africans and their descendants and Guaraní. There's also large populations or, you know, kind of groups of Africans living in the Jesuit uh, ranches in the hinterland. Um, at their peak, the Jesuits in the 18th century have something like a thousand, uh, I'm, I'm a little off on the figure here, but it's, it's over a thousand African slaves on their, on their ranches. Right? So it's a really large, large number, a large concentration of African slaves. Um, And these then are interacting with Guarani in town, right? As they come into town or as they interact with missions. um, You also have some really interesting uh, examples of runaway communities, really small groups, bands of of runaway slaves um, that also include Guarani people. Um, and these are groups that are living outside of town, and they're preying on travelers, so Guadani travelers coming in and out from for the mita and they're preying on um, um, Spaniards as they're as they're traveling. and so you ah. have these these kind of groups of um, uh, of of robbers right that are are preying on people um, and they're pretty loose they they kind of form up and then they dissolve and 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 uh, But it's a really interesting example of the ways in which, you know, the the spread of Guarani amongst African uh, and and slave populations created this, you know, this this context for communities and and these groups of of Indians and Africans living together.
2: Um, on page 265, you write the following Free and enslaved Africans were situated along a continuum of service and servitude, and enslaved Blacks experienced considerably less freedom than their Yanakona or mitai, Mitaiho counterparts. Can you say more? Can you comment on the differences in lived experience between free Africans and enslaved Africans?
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, because um, often, oftentimes Africans, Spaniards purchased Africans because they could, they were a, a, an asset that they could liquidate quickly. They could, you, you know, they, they represented a, a sum of, of capital, 600 pesos, 500 pesos, 300 pesos, that, you know, with the stroke of a pen, they could turn into another investment. Um, and so, um, this is one of the, this is one of the, you know, oppressions that African slaves experienced that was much more severe than, um, some of the Guarani servants who had legal recourse, right. To, to not just be sold and bought at will, e- even though we do have examples of Spaniards, uh, trading, uh, Guarani servants, um, but there there is legally, uh, there is a, a much harsher regime working against Africans um, than against tribute paying Guarani peoples, especially Guarani in the missions, right? Who have um, some some kind of, of protection from Spanish avarice, right? Because they're connected to that that town. The Guaraní living on Spanish communities um, experienced even less freedom, I think, and and more opportunity for abuse and 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 treatment like a, you know, like a uh, like like a like an asset, like other slaves were. Um, we see this distinction, you know, between kinds of um, legal freedoms and rights when we have. Um, mixed race unions so there's a case of a, a black slave who marries an indigenous woman and uh their children are now in dispute um and because of the the roman law um that the status of the individual follows the womb of the mother Right. They are deemed Indians and not blacks. And so they couldn't be enslaved and sold at will by a particular owner. Um, and they were sort of shielded from their potential encomendero. And so I see this this one case I think is illustrative of the of the different ways in which um, the categories of slave and the category of Indio, right, made some some crucial crucial differences in what could or could happen to you legally.
2: Along these lines, uh, there's a passage on pages 38 and 39, where you write the following. Um, Even when conquistadors treated a woman, they recognized that she remained embedded in political networks of dasco, and that their actions toward her could upset Guarani Tuvichas. By contrast, owners of African slaves were not concerned with how their treatment of slaves would affect their relations with slaves' native communities. Spaniards generally did not sever their relationship with India's communities. In fact, many Indias maintained social networks with their home villages even after relocating to conquistadors' households. We've spoken quite a bit about the Cunyadesco system, but in this passage where you contrast the treatment of African slaves with the treatment of uh, Guarani women in the household, I was wondering if you could kindly say more about the difference in status and treatment between the two and how African slaves might've been treated differently.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that this is a really good, uh, good point to, to bring back in. Uh, it's the presence of indigenous communities. It's the presence of the Tobaja, right? Uh, the presence of the brother-in-law that you have to deal with as a Spaniard. Um, at, least, at least into the 16, you know, by the, by the 1640s that Tobaja is, is sort of disappearing. But in this earlier phase, yeah, you have to you have to be careful. Um, I mean, there's a case in Guayda, which is a, you know re- really Spaniards are very new to the area, but they it's clear that they are terrified, right, of of uh, Guadani communities linking up and just uh, erasing the Spaniards. Uh, they they enter a community uh, that's supposed to be part of an encomienda. And um, they have to be really careful not to, um, not to, to abuse the, the population. In fact, the, the captain tells everyone there's, this, there's a girl here that um, is supposed to be wedded to another guadani leader. And he said, I don't want you to touch her. Well, one of the Spaniards did. And he, he, he um, kidnapped her and took her to a little ranch and, and he raped her. Wow. Um, And he was in big trouble because he he disrupted this political relationship with the Tobaja. And um, the Spanish captain was, you know, feared that they were going to be wiped out. So he was he was chained. uh, He was prosecuted and sent back to Asuncion for that act. Right. And that's it's not that's not humanitarianism. Right. It's not it's not because Spaniards, uh, felt like this was a wrong or, you know, because it was an abuse of indigenous people. I mean, rape was prosec- prosecutable, but it's rare. Uh, but what I think made the case so severe was the, the the potential for completely blowing up the political relationships between Spaniards and, and uh, Guarani. And with Afri- Africans, you don't, you just don't have that that, that ability, right, or that that dynamic. Um, and so um, this, this allows for more abuse. And it, of course, you're, you're, you're selling and buying um, slaves uh, and you, you, you can't necessarily do that with all Guarani.
2: What transpired in the 1660 Arasaya Rebellion? Why was this a transformative event? Can you comment on this episode? and also speak to atrocities that were used to suppress it and atrocities committed against victims of the rebellions repression.
1: Sure. Yeah. This is a chapter that's, you know, situated in the middle of the book that I've been framing community and framing Cunadasco. And, you know, the chapter is an attempt to show, you know, examples of really profound violence and, and, um, the Arakaya Rebellion is is rooted in um, is rooted in a a period of increasing uh, labor demands on Guarani communities, and this specific community is created in the 1630s. The rebellion happens in the 1660. And so it's a young community, fairly young, and it's situated in the north um, along the, the path of the Yerba Mate uh, 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 groves. And so these are this is a community that's being pulled into Yerba uh, troops. They're being demanded uh, that they go, they work on forts that are being constructed on the Paraguay River to defend against Guaycuru. Uh, and so it's this, it's this moment where Spaniards are really susceptible. Uh, they're kind of, uh, they're, they're backed against the ropes by Guaikuru um, and, and at the same time, there's increasing economic activity with the yerba. And so this community just experiences a whole lot of, of demand. There's also a whole lot of taking individuals out of the community to go serve as personal servants in Asuncion um and so you have a community that's kind of bristling already uh, there's no permanent priest in the community so you don't have uh you know a, a colonial official or someone representing the colonial uh institutions permanently there and so what happens in this community is they start linking up with groups that are outside the mission complexes. Um, and they, um, they a, a, a Spanish official comes to the community in 1650 and punishes them for not doing what they should be doing, for running away from the community, for not being ready for the mita. Um, and they actually end up executing one of the leaders of the community. Fast forward ten years later, uh, you have Spaniards visiting again, and in a visita, and uh, they rebel the the Aracaya community, uh, and it's violent. They you know they uh, kill as many Spaniards as they can. The Spaniards are able to hold out, but um, they they end up uh, defeating this this community, which. It, it was a it was a broader rebellion than just this community of Areccaya, uh, and so it speaks to the you know the the oppression that these people are experiencing. What they do is they move them south, closer to Asuncion. This was the typical tactic of Spaniards to just just up, uplift them and plant them somewhere else. They initially were going to. Um, to assign all of the Arakaya people to individual Spaniards in Asuncion. And they did that for a few years, but then priests intervened, officials intervened and said, You can't do this. You have to allow them to be a community. And so they ended up um, lumping what, what was left of the community into another mission. Um, and so it was a devastating blow. Uh, you know, it was violent, many people were executed. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a profound example of, of removal, deracination of, uh, of, of colonial violence against a, a rebellious community.
2: Who was Juan Cuarasi? Can you provide a biographical portrait of him? And can sure. you describe both his historical significance as well as his rise and fall?
1: Sure. Kaurasi was born in around 1585 um, in the Eastern region of Guaira. This is the region of the yerba mate. Uh, He worked in yerba groves. He was sent to yerba groves and it's there that he um, starts interacting with other pajé, other shaman. Um, again, you have this fluid uh, interaction between groups that are inside the mission and outside the missions uh, traveling groups that are interacting with people who are somewhere in between. And he starts learning, you, you know, uh, the kind of craft of, of the page. He starts learning chants and songs. He's given, uh, right, what he would consider spiritual gifts to speak and to inspire and, um, and to invoke potentially spirits to, uh, to, to prophesy. Um, and he ends up uh, uh, moving about the region in in ways that are initially surprised me it just showed how mobile uh, people could be in this region uh, he bounced from one community to another he even visited a woman um, who was uh, if not a wife at least a, a woman with whom he had children in Asunción right in the, in the capital city he snuck in and you know, visited his, this woman and their children, and then took off to another location. And what he ends up doing is kind of building um, a kind of program that I call the anti-reduction or anti-reduction program. What he's doing is he's, he's saying, I am actually a true priest. And he goes into these missions in the South of what's modern day Paraguay along the Paraná River. And he, he starts preaching a message of, you know, these priests tell you that they're here to save you, but watch what happens, right? You get baptized and you die. You, you, you get diseases. And, and he says, they're also trying to eradicate you through a specific program of, 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 of reproductive eradication. He says, they're taking away all of our women. So polygyny was crucial to Juan Cuarici. And he saw the eradication of polygyny as as sort of, uh, uh, you know, as a nail in the coffin for Guarani culture. And he said, we have to move away from this. And so he started drawing people out of missions. There there was a crisis in uh, seven different mission towns in the South of Paraguay. Um, And he's, but he's also borrowing deeply from Christian symbols and ideas. Uh, he, He says that he was at once he was once killed and then he became resurrected. He has visions of, of demons that look like, uh, you know, things that come out of Dante's Inferno. He um, he even uses the staffs of justice that were part of the kind of mission world that the Jesuits and, and other priests created. It was a symbol of the authority of the indigenous leader in a community. Um, he he used these to spread his message. He would actually send disciples out. To, sh- to share his message and they would carry his staff of justice. So he's using these, these symbols of colonial authority and usurping them. Uh, he would perform de-baptisms, uh, all kinds of rituals and, and and prayers that that creatively used Catholic ideas and theology uh, with his own Guarani cosmology. He was eventually captured by, um, uh, by Guarani, at the behest of Jesuits and sent to Asuncion, he stood trial uh, and was executed. Uh, He was executed under civil and criminal, and in some ways, ecclesiastical law. It's a really interesting case because there was no inquisition in Paraguay. Uh, There was no office of an inquisition and there was no inquisitor available to run this case. Um, And so he, he was accused of sedition um, and so criminal, and he was accused of blasphemy against the church. And so there, were, there was a priest involved in the trial as well. It's a really interesting example of these kind of different uh, angles of legalism coming, uh, coming against Juan Cuadasu. You
2: described his trial in some detail in the book, can you s- describe to our listeners who are not familiar what happened at his trial, and what does this trial teach us about "quote unquote" justice in Paraguay during this period?
1: Mm, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, this is this is a, a violent end. He's he's executed by being drawn and quartered, um, and so uh, the most severe form of punishment and and the the performative nature of his punishment is significant um there were guarani uh present who you know were asked to watch the execution uh to send the message that uh, this wasn't you know going to be tolerated um his parts of his body were placed at strategic locations outside of town on the main roads and um, interestingly, his head was placed uh, on the other side of the river uh, as, a, as, as, a, as a way of sending a message to the Guaycuru, right? And so uh, he, his body was just so terribly abused uh, by these Spaniards who really were fearful of a growing rebellion and of the increased uh, violence of Guaikuru peoples against Against, para- against the colony. Um, as a form of justice, it's, it's actually quite unusual. His case is, is really unusual because most Guarani Pache shamans were dealt with in the missions, right? This is where all the activity is happening. And so he, he targeted the missions, right? He didn't target Asuncion necessarily. He targeted the missions. He wanted to pull populations away from them. Um, And and we get a sense of how Jesuits dealt with guys like Quaracy. They tried to shame them. They tried to pull the rug out from under them by by taking people that, that were following the Pache and bringing them back to the mission. Or they put them up to tests of miracles Right, and they they the Jesuits didn't say, "Look, he can't perform the miracle," or "This prophecy didn't come true." He's he's a charlatan. He's a liar, right? And and then the Jesuits would point to miracles that they would perform. And so it was a battle of pache between the Jesuits and these and these Guarani pache. And so, this is how most of them were dealt with. And so it was a sort of Jesuits used a divide and conquer method. They they had individual leaders who would you know who they would rely on to speak against pache who would visit their communities or sometimes emerge within the community there are people who were who were in the missions who just said i'm done i I don't i don't want to practice monogamy right Uh, it's too it's too important or we're all dying because of an epidemic and i think the jesuits are doing this Um, and so it was all dealt with internally and there was there was no you know, legal procedure for dealing with these Pache uh, because they were such new converts. What makes the Quarasu case different is that it's so widespread. He's he's connecting all of these communities that are subject to encomienda and the fact that he was, you know, moving through Asuncion. He had connections in Asuncion. Um, and so it was that much of a threat that they they took this really severe uh, uh, path uh for uh, towards Quattacy.
2: there's a table that you present on pages one seventy two and seventy three uh, uh, sorry uh, there's an image you present on on page one seventy two and one seventy three you present images of two forts um, fort san ildefonso and san Augustin de Arekutagua. Can you explain the significance of these forts and can you explain the importance of these images?
1: Yeah, these are these are forts constructed in uh, a period in the 1660s, 16, um, 1650s, 60s, where Paraguayan officials are really feeling the pain of Guaycuru attacks. And so it's an attempt to kind of construct um, physical spaces for defense um, against Guaycuru. These are forts that are located on the Paraguay uh, River, uh, in between the Paraná River and the, I believe, the Jesuí River to the north. Um, and um, these are these are drawings that I, I find interesting because you know they've got these really powerful-looking forts uh, made out of stone. Um, but the, the written record uh, reveals they're made out of mud and straw, right? And so this, this attempt to kind of uh, construct a strength here, a pride, um, it, it kind of falls apart in light of other documents. Spaniards were really uh, on the ropes um, during this period. It was a period of, of tremendous contraction as well. Uh, there was a massive invasion by Portuguese slavers in the 17, excuse me, 1670s um, that w- almost simultaneously with Guaycuru raids in the North of Paraguay. And so you had uh, many missions have to be relocated to the South, closer to Asuncion uh, and several um, uh, Spanish settlement, uh, Villa Rica had to be re- relocated closer to to Asuncion. Just for its protection, so the the drawings, I think you know are, are 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 kind of a fun way of thinking about how Spaniards perceive themselves on this frontier uh, and contrasting that with what what comes out of, in the documentation.
2: On what page one seventy four you present another table describing the statistics on military expeditions. With documented Indio soldier participation, can you describe what that table presents?
1: Sure. Yeah, we we have um, we we've known in you know in, in the field of of um, in, in studies of conquest in the Americas how essential indigenous peoples were. Right, uh, there were thousands and thousands of indigenous people in the conquest of of Mexico. And I suspected that we would find more evidence of this. Um, And and so what what we found in Paraguay is that these continual expeditions against Guaikuru always have Guaraní soldiers. Um, And so there is a kind of militia, local militia structure that that evolves in Paraguay um and and this uh i was able to kind of pull together as many data points as i could um and the you know the the data is hard to to come by it pops up in reports or it appears in a a a priest report Um, but you have these accounts of these expeditions and you know some of them you have in 1660s you have 600 indian soldiers 500 Indian soldiers in 1676, 700 in, in a place like Paraguay, this, this is a lot, right? This is a, these are large expeditions um, that require lots of resources. Uh, you're traveling for months at a time, really difficult terrain. You've got to take cattle with you for food along the way. Um, and so these are costly and the burden largely fell on Guarani communities, right? To assemble, Um, to to assemble food, Uh, but also Spaniards bore significant burden, right? They had to to provide arms and supplies. And so just the frontier life of defense in this area was was pretty heavy. Um, But the significance of these militias uh, that that really has gone under the radar, right? We've, We've not known about these Guarani militias in the Asuncion area. Uh, we do know a lot about the Guaraní militias in the Jesuit missions, um, and their militias were much more formalized. They had officers, they had uniforms, there was cannons and firearms, um, and the militias under the control of Asunción were much less formal, much less well armed. They're not, not as well armed, um, usually carrying bow and arrow or spears. Um, and they were subsumed under Spanish captains, right? They formed up when they were needed and they were controlled by a Spanish captain. Um, but the, the military service also has some dividends for Guarani communities. They get tribute exemptions. They get uh, literally payments of axe heads um, for participating in these expeditions.
2: Who were the Paulistas? What can you tell us about them and the way they treated indigenous peoples?
1: Yeah, so so my book looks at the Paulista uh, looks at Sao Paulo from the the angle of Paraguay, right? From from the Paraguayan side, um, the Paulistas were Portuguese settlers. Um, they they established a, a settlement in Sao Paulo in, in the mid-16th century, and one of the primary methods that they use to, to get labor for the ranches and haciendas that they're building is, is, is by enslaving indigenous peoples. They would go on these really big expeditions and they would just round up uh, native groups. They would always have native allies with them, um, but Um, Those two stories kind of meet in my third chapter, which deals with this Eastern region of Guayra, which is the borderlands between Spanish Paraguay and uh, uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, um, Portuguese Brazil. And in that context, you have the Jesuits entering and building mission communities and that they're conglomerating, starting to conglomerate populations and, uh, and the Portuguese take advantage of this and just raid the communities, the largest slave raids in South America um, in this period. And so I, I use, I use the, the ways in which the Paulistas acquire laborers as, as outright slaves, um, and they'll hide them in their legal, in their wills as, as godchildren, but they're clearly Uh, being treated as slaves, being sold and bought. They refer to Indian slaves as negros da terra, blacks of the land, meaning those who are native to the land of the Americas. And so they're applying a kind of, they're Africanizing, uh, applying African uh, 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 modes of African slavery to indigenous peoples. In, In Paraguay, I don't want to suggest that they weren't as cruel, right? Or more humanitarian. But the primary mode of acquiring labor was encomienda. And as I argue in the book, encomienda is shaped and transformed by cuñadasco. And so these two patterns for for acquiring labor, right I think contrast in significant ways. I just don't think that it's that we can. Uh, use the word slavery to define everything that's happening here. I think mm-hmm. there are different gradations we need to be attuned to.
2: What role did indios play in ecclesiastical institutions?
1: Um, do you mean uh, in mission towns in the in the town structure?
2: Yeah, like, I, yeah, but that yeah that's one context. I'm referring to page two thirty eight where you describe roles that indios in asuncion played in ecclesiastical institutions
1: oh yeah yeah i mean you have uh churches always have uh assistants uh fiscales they call them and you'll often have some have indigenous fiscales somebody may be trained in the in the convent school uh to to read latin to you know to help with the priest's duties uh, but these are fairly small in number. These these groups of of educated in in kind of uh, Catholic education they're they're few in number, but they're there. Um, I think it gets back to something we already talked about, which was the cofradías. Um, this is another really important ecclesiastical institution for for Guarani peoples in the city. Um, so these are the these are the main main ways in which you have the connections with with church institutions and Guarani communities at least in Asunción. in the missions themselves there's you know there's more there's offices, you know again, fiscales assistance to the priests that are there, children being trained in these schools and the missions. Um, we have examples from the the Guarani Jesuit missions. Um, a guy named Yapu Guay who's writing sermons. He's translating uh, histories into Guaraní, right? Um, really engaged in um, in you know teaching and preaching and uh, Catholic Guaraní culture, uh, directed at his own communities. So there's some really really interesting um, literate figures within this structure.
2: In your conclusion, you tell the story of Nando. What can we learn of him?
1: Yeah, this is, some, this is a, a Guarani man who is part of a mission community in the north of Asuncion. Um, he is in this community um, during the, the, the raids by the Guaycuru and the Paulistas in the 1670s. And he's forced to relocate south he was part of a Jesuit uh, mission. Um, And so he moved south and uh, he ends up becoming connected with the the Jesuit college, which was the most important uh, ecclesiastical and educational institution. It was also the most important economic institution. Um, And so he's associated with the college in some way. Uh, We're not quite clear what he's doing for them. But there's an encomendero who intervenes and says, hey, this guy is mine. This is an Indian who belongs to my encomienda. And so uh, Nandu fights for his freedom to remain free from encomienda. And I use the case as, as, as an example of the, of the kind of frontier nature of the area, the fluidity of the area of people moving in and out of different communities of um, the, 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 the different patterns of, uh, of family creation, Nandu is married to a mulata, uh, a, a woman of African descent, um, and their children are potentially going to become tributaries under a, an encomendero if, if Nandu doesn't win the case. He ultimately does win the case and, and achieves his, you know, his protection from this encomendero. So it, it's a reminder of the constant uh, attempts by Encomenderos to pull individual Guarani into their circles, their, their, into their households as servants. Um, the potential that some Guarani had to resist that, um, the different institutions available to people at the time, the Jesuits um, and the different uh, uh, peoples in, in this place, right? speaking Guarani
2: as we bring this interview to a close, what are you working on next as your subsequent project?
1: Sure. Yeah. So uh, my next project is, is tentatively titled uh, Guarani means war, the politics of defense in the Rio de la Plata. And uh, I'm picking up kind of a thread that I, I started in, in my, in my book, colonial kinship on the militias and um, moving the analysis into the Jesuit context and thinking about um, the relationship between Guarani culture, uh, the name of the Guarani, what it it means in relationship to their militia activities. Um, these, These were really significant militias that contributed to the defense of the entire region. They were involved in expeditions against Enemy indigenous against uh, en- enemy indigenous against Paulista slavers, um, and they also were involved in uh, at least three episodes of of uh, the siege of a colonial city on the on the coast called Colonia de Sacramento, which was a, it was the uh, perennial uh, battleground between the Portuguese and Spanish empires in the Rio de la Plata. Um, and Guarani were involved in it. There are Guarani language sources that talk about fighting in these sieges. There are Guarani manuals, uh, Guarani language manuals for, uh, for practicing as troops. Um, and so the, the idea is to think about um, what uh, fighting as a militia, as an organized militia means as an Indian community in the Spanish Americas. Uh, and so therein enters the, the politics and the contention over who gets the right to be members of a militia. Um, I'm, I'm arguing that the Guarani and the Jesuits performed a kind of social coup by by uh, giving Guarani this full status as militias and giving them access to firearms, which is a really uh, it's a heated topic today in our culture, and it was a heated topic in the seventeenth century um, who got to who got to bear weapons um, and uh, so I'm, I'm really kind of turning uh, in my methodology towards Guadani language and linguistic analysis um, to to kind of get at the culture and ideas about about violence, about warfare, um, transition from anthropophagy uh, to to the kind of the art, what, what's called in the sources, the art of war or the skill of war. I see that, I see Jesuits thinking about militias as a kind of another program for reforming Guatemalan culture. Um, so this is a, this is a project that, uh, that takes on the militias from the 17th, 16th century, 17th century uh, into the era of independence and kind of when the militias start to wane as a as a formal institution
2: that sounds like an incredible project it'll make an enormous intellectual contribution when it is ready
1: yeah it's got a long way to go thank you though yeah
2: thank you i'm incredibly grateful for your time and attention today and i'm incredibly thankful that you uh invested so much in producing such a monumental accomplishment in this book, Uh, so I wanted to simply end by conveying my heartfelt gratitude and my sincere appreciation to you um, for everything that went into this book, Colonial Kinship.
1: Thanks for that, Ari. I appreciate you uh, reading the book so thoroughly and creating so many great questions.
2: Absolutely. I appreciate your time today and thank you for everything I learned from you and everything that our listeners as well learn from you. Thanks Ari. Uh, In closing, this is your host Ari Barbalat with New Books and Latin American Studies on the New Books Network. I've been in dialogue today with Sean Austin, Associate Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. We've been discussing his new book, Colonial Kinship, Guarani, Spaniards, and Africans in Paraguay, published by University of New Mexico Press 2020. Thank you
1: very much.